gospel, the seventh chapter, we've seen very, very clearly in our study so far in Mark's gospel that Jesus is really at the height of his popularity, and the crowds have been huge, and, and great multitudes coming to see Jesus because he's working all kinds of miracles. He's touching those who are sick and those who are diseased. He's freeing those who are demonized. And so as they're coming and gathering around Jesus there in the Galilee region, they're coming to receive a touch from him. And then we saw last week in chapter 6 that our Lord fed 5,000 with just a few loaves and fish. And we know that the people at that time, after the feeding of the 5,000, from John's gospel tells us that they wanted to crown him king right there and then. Hey, he has fed us. He's healing us. We'll never go hungry. We'll never uh, be sick again. He'll free us from Rome that is holding us in bondage and under suppression. But the Lord would not take the crown of royalty at that time. He dismissed the crowds because he's going to be headed to Jerusalem where he's going to wear a crown of thorns. And he's going to free them from the bondage of sin. And that's the greatest need that any of us have ever had, that is to be forgiven of sin and be free from the power of sin. So Jesus is going to Calvary's cross for them, just as he went for us. And we know that the people uh, are continuing to just gather around him. Now, as we continued in chapter 6 last week, the disciples were then told, after the feeding of the 5,000, to get into a boat and go to the other side, to that area of Bethsaida, and the disciples, while they're in that boat, crossing the Sea of Galilee, a storm came up. The wind was contrary, so the disciples were really struggling and straining, trying to do what the Lord had commanded them to do, and that is to go to the other side. And those disciples found themselves in the midst of that storm, and in the fourth watch, that is the middle of the night, about 3 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came to them walking on the water. And last week we discussed that as we, as believers, whenever we find ourselves in the midst of a storm, know this, that the Lord sees you, and the Lord will come to you in that storm. And he may come to you, you're wondering, where are you, Lord? As you're in the darkest hour of the difficulty that you're in, but know this, he will come to you. And he sees you, and he loves you, and he desires to work as you just call out to him. And so here they were in that storm, Jesus coming to them and calmed the storm that they were in. And so now as we go into chapter 7, we're going to see that the popularity of Jesus continues to grow. But what we also see is the religious establishment, those religious leaders of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, as well as the political leaders, the Herodians, are mounting their opposition against Jesus. They're coming against him, and they are desiring to, to find a reason to accuse him. We know from Mark chapter 3 that after Jesus healed that man of, of the withered hand there in the synagogue in Capernaum, that they're plotting together now to even have him put to death. So let's begin to read chapter 7 of Mark's gospel, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of the disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. And let's go to the Lord and pray before we continue on with their study. Lord, we do ask that even this morning, if there's anyone here, that they come into this place and storms have been in their lives. They're in a storm presently that they would know that you're here this morning and you desire to touch their hearts and to bring comfort and, Lord, to encourage, to bring strength. 
Lord, to bring wisdom. And Lord, I, I do pray that our hearts would be right now sensitive and teachable and like fertile soil to receive the seed of the word. And our ears open to you for what you have for us this morning. That we be still in our chairs. And Lord, that we would be attentive in these next few moments as we read the text, knowing that your word is alive, touching our hearts, piercing our hearts. And Lord, you're desiring to minister in a very real way, in a very deep way. So we give you this time as you teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the people rallying around Jesus as he taught them, he, he's teaching them about the things of the kingdom. He's manifesting the love of the Father. And Jesus, he has been with tax collectors and sinners, eating with them, as we saw previously in Mark's gospel, when he called Matthew to follow after him. And Matthew, being a tax collector, would have Jesus over to his house to, to have those other sinners and tax collectors, those who were friends of Matthew, to meet his newfound Lord. And the religious leaders didn't like that. They said, how can he eat with such people who are sinners? And we know that it was Jesus that then uh, had the religious leaders criticizing him and his disciples for plucking grain there in the fields when they were hungry and what you do is unlawful on the Sabbath. And then that confrontation would continue in the synagogue on the Sabbath day as Jesus healed that man on the Sabbath day with the withered hand. And, and the religious leaders believed there was to be absolutely no work. And according to our regulations and our rules, that includes doing no healing on the Sabbath day. So after that event of the healing of the man with the withered hand in Mark chapter 3, they had plotted that we need to put him to death. So their opposition against Jesus is growing. The religious leaders are very much offended by Jesus. And I believe at this point, we do know that the religious leaders would hand Jesus over because of envy and because of jealousy there in Jerusalem right before he went to the cross when they handed him over to Pilate. And so that jealousy and that envy is beginning to mount up and well up within the religious establishment. And so here is this, this delegation from Jerusalem. They come to Galilee to watch Jesus and his disciples and to find fault with them. And that is always the progression. When it comes to jealousy and envy, first you watch an individual and then you find fault. And we're going to see that very clearly in our Wednesday night study as we're going through 1 Samuel. Here is Samuel going to come to Jesse's house, anoint David as the new king of Israel. We've already seen that Saul is told that the kingdom is going to be taken away from you, Saul. And David, he didn't ascend to the throne right away. But instead, David is going to go and minister to Saul, be used in Saul's army to go to war against the Philistines. And Saul became very jealous and envious and bitter towards David. It says that Saul watched David, and then he feared David, and finally he wished that David was dead. David, who would end up serving Saul in the palace, ministering to him. David that was leading the nation against the Philistines. David, the one who killed giant Goliath. And Saul becomes very jealous, and that jealousy would grow in Saul to where he wanted David dead. And he pursued David in the wilderness for many years. And here is now the son of David. The son of David is a messianic term. Jesus, we know from the scriptures, would be a descendant of David. So the people would call him the son of David, a messianic term. And the son of David, the greater than David, the one who was healing the sick, 
and people being delivered from demons. He fed 5,000 with a miracle meal, and the religious leaders come from Jerusalem to watch him and his disciples, and they find fault with him. Jealousy and envy were in the hearts of those Pharisees. And specifically in our text, at this time, the Pharisees are upset, they're turned off because the disciples didn't wash their hands properly. And it wasn't that, okay, your disciples, before they eat, they're not washing their hands or they're not doing a very good job. You know how it is, parents, with our children. We tell them to wash their hands before they eat, and they just kind of splash it, you know, and that's it. And we know their hands are dirty. It isn't anything like that. The Pharisees were considering the disciples to be ceremonially unclean because they're not doing it properly. They're not doing it in a way that we have specified. And so they are coming against Jesus. They're being critical of his disciples and will continue to do this. One of the things that we need to remember as Christians in Galatians chapter 5, that Paul tells us, if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So Paul was warning the Christians of Galatia as well as us that if you bite and pick at and find fault with others, know that you're going to get bit and you're going to get consumed, that others are going to be finding fault with you. So we need to keep that in mind the next time that we want to bite somebody in an ungodly way, know that you're going to get bit as well. And so these guys, jealous and envious with Jesus, find fault with him. And they're saying, aha, his disciples are not following the ceremonial washing rituals. And according to the Mishnah, which they were following, where all the rules and regulations were spelled out concerning the washings that were given to them, where they would be considered to be ceremonially clean. And you see, the Mishnah not only had rules concerning washing, but also concerning keeping of the Sabbath and how they were to fast properly and how they were to pray and all these rules and regulations that they had. And so the Pharisees are saying, hey, you're not washing in the right way where you are considered ceremonially clean. And so verse 3, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they have received and hold, like the washing of cups and pitchers and copper vessels and couches. And so, again, they weren't doing it in the way that was prescribed, which, you know, you can read it and you can see that they would take a certain amount of water, uh, you know, a half an eggshell and have water and pour it on the back of your fingers and you would kind of have it drip a certain way and down your wrist and all these certain ways that you had to do to be considered clean before you ate and that was very important to them because maybe you went to the marketplace and maybe you, you actually accidentally bumped somebody that was unclean and, and so you don't know. Or maybe that coin that you were using, maybe a Gentile had that coin before you did, and now you've touched it, and so you're considered unclean. And so if you come back from the market, and, and before you ate, you had to make sure that you were considered clean ceremonially. And so they would go through this ritual of a cleansing and all the other things that they were prescribed to do. Now, here's what was happening. For centuries before Jesus, of course, there were the scribes, and the scribes were the ones that copied the law. They copied the scriptures. As the original would come out, they would be responsible for making sure that the copies of the scriptures were, were copied down correctly into 
that, we have much appreciation and gratitude because they did an incredible job of that, history tells us and research tells us. But also, over time, what happened was the scribes would be ones that would interpret the law as well. They were kind of legal experts, and they would make application of the law. They began to define what does it mean to really wash, what makes you really ceremonially clean. And so the scribes came up with all these rules and regulations. And again, it wasn't just concerning washing, but other areas of their lives as well. And so it came out to be known as the tradition of the elders. Volumes upon volumes was written, written concerning even the washing ritual itself, how to wash your hands, pretty incredible. The Pharisees, they were a sect of the religious leaders. They were dedicated to keeping the laws and the rules that the scribes had interpreted. And here are the Pharisees finding fault with Jesus and his disciples because they weren't keeping those rules and the tradition of the elders. You see, the Pharisees came into existence in that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Remember that between the Old Testament and the birth of Jesus Christ, the New Testament, there is a 400-year gap between Malachi and the birth of Jesus. There was a 400-year gap, and we don't know of any prophet that was in the land during those 400 years. Now, God was still working, and in our recent Daniel study that we finished, you know, at the end of the year a couple months ago, you recall that we talked a lot about the Maccabean revolt and, and that time of, of Epiphanes that came along and suppressed the Jews and how it was Judas Maccabee and his brothers that led a revolt against them, and they would cleanse the temple and, and all the history behind that. Well, shortly after that time, the Pharisees were formed because they were afraid that Judaism would be polluted and pagan, uh, paganized. And they said, we're going to have a sect that is called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are going to be the separated ones. That's what that word means. And they will keep the most minute details of the law and the tradition of the elders concerning the law. And the problem was that over that time, and that would take place about 150 years before the birth of Jesus, over time, as you get to the time of Jesus, they got so carried away about keeping the tradition of the elders that it became more important than the law itself. In other words, the tradition of the elders were more important to them than the scriptures themselves. And so here are the Pharisees. Here are the scribes, this official delegation from Jerusalem, and they come to Jesus' disciples and begin to criticize, hey, you're not washing your hands properly. And not only were the religious leaders into washing their hands in a special way, but verse 4, if you note again, it tells us that they were into washing their pots and their pans and their cups in a very special way. I mean, they were really into this washing thing. And here is Jesus and his disciples. They're just enjoying life. They're enjoying the love of the Father. The people are gathering around Jesus and hearing him gladly. They ate with him frequently. They enjoyed being with him. They were being ministered to and healed and, and comforted. And these religious traditionalists did not like it. Have you ever found that to be true sometimes? You know, you can be one that's just enjoying the Lord, just filled with his love, experiencing his grace. You're growing in your devotion to him. And then all of a sudden, somebody will come along and begin to put this bondage of legalism on you. Well, why don't you do what I do? Why don't you do what we do? Why don't you observe this certain day? 
Why don't you observe this certain day? Why do you not wear what I wear or eat what I eat or whatever it might be? All these things that really have nothing to do with your relationship with the Lord. It would be in Acts chapter 15, a very important chapter that we have in the New Testament. You see, after the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, when the early church got started, all of a sudden the Gentiles were getting saved. And so God began to pour out his spirit on the Gentiles, and so the Jews didn't know quite what to think of that. So Paul, as he's there in Antioch, and he's beginning to minister to the Gentiles and, and Barnabas, all of a sudden these Judaizers or legalists would show up and they would say, hey, that's all fine and dandy that you Christians are considered you know, saved because of your faith in Jesus Christ alone, but there actually is more to it because you have to be circumcised. You have to keep the law of Moses. So there was this meeting of the church leaders, Peter and James and the boys in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas come cruising up to Jerusalem from Antioch, and they have this meeting. And what is interesting in Acts chapter 15 is some of the Pharisees were there at that meeting. You say some of the Pharisees. You see what happened was after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, some of these Pharisees got saved. They believed in Jesus, and there they are. They still have this legalistic bent, but they're, they're believers in the Lord. And they are coming along, and they're saying, yes, those Gentile believers must be circumcised and must keep the law of Moses, as you read there in the text of Acts chapter 15. And so they're having this meeting, and Peter stands up, and he talks about how the Lord used him to give the gospel to the Gentiles, and God has poured out his spirit on them. And then Peter would also go on to say, why do we test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor were we able to bear? Christianity was really at a crossroads at that time because there was a real threat that Christianity was just going to be another sect of Judaism. And Peter stands up and says, why do we want to put this yoke that our fathers couldn't even bear. What yoke? The yoke of legalism. The yoke of legalism. And there are those today that will come along and they'll try to put a yoke of legalism on it. Well, you shouldn't observe this day or you have to observe that day or you shouldn't eat this thing or you shouldn't wear that or you shouldn't sing these songs or whatever it might be. And it's a very heavy yoke. And Jesus said to the people, come to me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I know that there are commandments that are clearly spelled out and truths and principles that we are to follow. But sometimes there are those who will come along and try to put that yoke of legalism on you and me, and you've got to do it this specific way, and it really has nothing to do with your relationship with the Lord. So verse 5, the Pharisees and scribes asked them, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? And he answered and said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. Jesus here is saying, you guys are missing it. You're involved in these traditions and rituals that have nothing to do with what God desires. And you're hypocrites. With your lips, you honor and you worship me. And I know that Jesus, what he said to these Pharisees, can kind of strike me at times in very subtle ways. 
In other words, I, I can sing the song, but in my heart it seems to be I'm a million miles away from really giving my devotion to the Lord. We can sing the songs, we can make the statements, we can co quote the scriptures, but what really matters is where's our hearts internally? He goes on, Jesus, to say to them in verse 9, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you might have, receive from me is Corbin, that is a gift to God, and you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. So Jesus is saying, you're actually rejecting the commandment of God that you may keep your traditions. You're putting your traditions over the word of God and the commandment of God. So Jesus here quotes from Exodus. We all know that Exodus tells us that we're to honor father and mother. That's part of the Ten Commandments. You have a moral obligation to honor mom and dad. But what do you guys do? Your parents, elderly, they need help. They need help financially, practically, in some way. And what do you do? You say, Corbin. For example, your parents come to you and say, we need help. And, and can I have that piece of bread that you have? Because we're hungry. And they would respond by saying, nope, can't do that. It's Corbin. I can't give it to you. I'd like to help you out, mom and dad, but I've dedicated it to God. That's what Corbin means. I can't rob God and give it to you. And the Pharisees would go through their homes and through their possessions, and they would say, Corbin this and Corbin that and, and Corbin this thing. And they would dedicate everything so that if anyone came and they had need, they would say, well, I'd like to help you out, but I can't. can't help you out, Mom and Dad. I can't wipe out the obligation that I've given to God and, and dedicating it to Him. And they would not help in a way that God would want them to by the commandments of God. I owe that. It, it's Corbin. I can't do it. It's dedicated to God. What it was was just a spiritual game that they were playing. And Jesus said, you make the word of God of no effect through your tradition. You're hypocrites. You won't help people out. Now think about this. As Jesus is addressing the religious leaders, contrast that, what we talked about last week, with that boy who gave of his loaves and fish to Jesus. And Jesus broke the bread and blessed it and gave it out to where 5,000 were fed because of one boy who gave what he had to the Lord and how I hope and pray for us that the things that we do have that we would dedicate it to the Lord we would give those things to the Lord but it would be used as we truly give it to him to bless and to help others that we wouldn't let traditions or or rituals just get in the way of doing what the Lord has called us to do. But we would be more concerned with what the scriptures have to say and that we would stand on the word of God. And if people come along and they criticize you or me, if they criticize us for something that we're doing or not doing, then what I say is show me chapter and verse where I am to do that or not do that. And I will look at God's word. And I will pray that I will be obedient to God's word, but you need to show me. And without the word of God, your opinions and your traditions really don't matter. You see, traditions really aren't bad or good in and of themselves. Their worth is, depends solely on how they stack up to the word of God. 
So Jesus is saying something important here. He says, your focus is all wrong. You should be concerned with the commandments of God, not the traditions of men. Externally, it may look like you guys are right with God, but inwardly, you're far from God and you're hypocrites. And you've made the word of God of no effect. In verse 14, and when he had called all the multitude to himself, he said to them, hear me, everyone, and understand. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when um, he had entered the house, away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable, verse 18. He said to them, Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatever enters a man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not enter his heart, but his stomach, and is eliminated, thus purifying all foods. And he said, What comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts and adulteries and fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Verse 23, all these evil things come from within and defile a man. So all your rules and what you can or can't eat, but it's not what you take in physically that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. That which is worked out in my life, that is what will defile you. And I've said this many times, but it's a fact. Whatever is in your heart is going to be worked out in your life. If there are things in your heart that isn't good, that causes you to be defiled, polluted, those things will eventually begin to be worked out in your life. So that's what Jesus is telling the, those religious leaders, and that's what he's telling the crowds here. Don't get hung up in the external. It's the internal, the spiritual. It's not the washing of hands, but the purity of heart. It's not what you eat, but what you express with your heart. Food just passes through your body, but what is inside your heart, that's what really defiles and defines where a person is at spiritually. So what is going on in your heart will eventually be worked out in your life. That's the issue, Jesus is saying. In verse 24, from there, he rose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. I kind of like that. Because you see, you can't hide Jesus. If he's in your life, he's in your heart, his presence is in your home. It's not going to be hid. It's going to be known. And Jesus was there. He can't be hid. At this point, he's wanting to get away from the crowds, and he's in the house, but it would be found out. And one of those who found out, verse 25, a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. And the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, For this saying, Go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. So Jesus leaves that area of the Galilee. He goes up north. He goes into that area, which today we know as Lebanon. He goes to that coast city of Tyre, and then north of there is Sidon. So he goes to Gentile country. He leaves the nation of Israel. He goes up into that area. And a woman comes to Jesus who has some real problems, who has real needs. 
her daughter is demonized. Now, it's important for us to compare Mark's account of this story with Matthew's account as we kind of get a further um, picture of what's taking place here. Here is this woman. She's a Gentile woman who approaches Jesus. She would cry out to him, according to Matthew's gospel, have mercy on me, son of David. And she continually cried that out to Jesus. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. She kept saying that. Now, son of David, as I mentioned to you, was a messianic title. And probably that woman who had heard of Jesus, the things that Jesus was doing, the healing that he was bringing, they had, she had heard the Jews using that term when they cried out to Jesus when he walked down the road. And so I think she borrowed that term. Having her daughter, having an unclean spirit in her, the woman cries out to Jesus, have mercy on me, son of David. And as she kept saying that, it tells us in Matthew also that the disciples told her to go away. Go away, you're bugging him. You, you just keep repeating this, beat it. And this woman kept crying out to Jesus. And then finally she stopped, and she would cry out, Lord, help me. And that's what we're told in the gospel accounts Jesus responded to her. And now Mark picks it up as it tells us, Mark's account, that Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now think about this. Was Jesus being harsh to her by ignoring her? Disciples kind of were. They're saying, hey, send her away. Tell her to leave. That's their mindset. But was Jesus being harsh, harsh to her? Referring to her as a, a, a little dog? And I don't think Jesus was at all. I think we need to really think about this. There's some wonderful things that we can learn from from this little vignette. Because here is this Gentile woman who is crying helplessly over her child. She cries out, to the Lord, have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. And Jesus did not say a word to her. So is Jesus being harsh? No. He's not being rude. I don't think he's ignoring her. Because I believe that Jesus here, he knows that he's going to be given help to her. But rather, this is what he's doing. He is drawing out from her an expression of faith. She comes brokenhearted, in pain, in agony over the situation of her daughter. And no doubt she thought, if I approach him in the proper manner, son of David, that's what the Jews are saying, I'll pray in that manner. That'll get his attention. You know, I remember when I was a young man, and I was just out of college, and I remember hearing a guy on TV, he said, when you pray, you need to show reverence and respect to the Lord. And I'm sitting there going, okay, that's important. So you have to pray in the King James prayer, in the language. And I'm thinking, wow, I haven't been doing that. And so he went on to say that if you really want to, God to hear you, you need to pray the King prayers, James. So I'm thinking, okay, you've got to do that. Lord, I cometh to you knowing that thou art great, and I thanketh thee, and, and so forth. Until it was later on in my walk with the Lord, I realized that I didn't have to pray in that kind of phraseology to get God's attention. And I think that's what was happening to this woman. This woman thought when she initially came to Jesus and was crying out to him that if I have the right phraseology, that'll get the Lord's attention. Have mercy on me, son of David. That's a messianic term, son of David. And 
She thought that it was her formula, her phraseology that would get his attention, but it wasn't until she would simply cry out and say, Lord, help me. Three simple little words. Lord, help me. And I know there's been plenty of times in my life, and I know you probably feel the same way, where my heart was troubled or my heart was concerned or my heart was in agony over somebody or situation and and all I could do is cry out Lord help me and here she comes in the openness of her heart and the brokenness and worship and she said Lord help me and Jesus had just taught his disciples on what manners is your heart where are you at with the Lord it's a heart issue and now this woman this incredible woman comes to him and expresses her heart to him with three simple little words Lord help me and that is when he turned to her and responded to her he was drawing out from her that expression of faith from her heart and I would encourage you to come to Jesus in simplicity of heart express yourself to him he honors that I love it when I'm in a prayer meeting with some guys and, and the guys are just praying and they just have needs or they really got something that's troubling their hearts and they're just, they're just praying. It's not an eloquent, you know, prayer. It's just a prayer of simplicity of heart. And I know that the Lord honors that. And I pray and hope for us that we would come to the place where we say, Lord, I'm just going to express my heart to you today. Help me. I come with this need. I come with this hurt. I come with this request. Lord, I need direction. I need guidance. And you'll see that the Lord will respond to you. Because the dialogue continues here. Jesus said, it's not good to take the children's bread and give it to the little dogs. Again, the children refer to the children of Israel, the Jews. Uh, Speaking of bread, it's referring to himself, the bread of life. Dogs is referring to little puppy dogs, a pet reference to to the Gentiles. Jesus said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And here is this woman. She is Greek. She's outside of the covenant. Lord, help me. My daughter's home. She's vexed with this unclean spirit. And Jesus said, it's not good to take the children's bread and cast it to the little puppies. Now, in Jesus' day, people mostly ate kind of with their hands. In a lot of parts of the world, if you go to countries in the Middle East and in Africa, you'll see that very clearly. And I remember eating with the chaplains of the Southern Sudanese army, and you had beans and rice, and it was real runny, and and I would eat with a spoon, no problem, but you have bread at each meal, and so they would take their bread, and they kind of used the bread as a spoon. But by the time they really got done with their meal, their hands were just really all, you know, greased up with the beans and, and the soups and the sauces really smeared up i never seen anything like it it was pretty incredible and what they would do is take that kind of that last piece of bread and they would wipe their hands with it and then kind of toss it on the ground and then the chickens or whatever would come along and they would eat it in this case the puppy dogs you know they would do the same thing in this time which is kind of be underneath there waiting to eat you know this last piece of bread that you threw down Um, They had all these delicious juices on it, and the dog would eat the crumbs. The woman says, I know that you've come to the house of Israel. Yet even the puppy dogs don't get the best bread, but they still get the crumbs that come from the table. And I can just picture a smile coming across the face of Jesus. He marveled at her faith. 
And this is what he was after all along. You see, to help her, not to be harsh to her. To develop her faith, not to be difficult to her. And perhaps you're here this morning, and you might be thinking, is the Lord being difficult with me? Why isn't he answering my prayers immediately? Why isn't he helping my need right now? The Lord is there. And it could be that he's just doing something very important in your life. He's allowing a dialogue to take place between you and him where he is developing your faith, perseverance and prayer, principles that will help you just not in your own present situation, but in also in your walk with him in the future, your walk with him in your life. He is giving you valuable and important understandings, and he will draw out from you faith and understandings. So he allowed this dialogue to come about, knowing that he would draw out from her that which would eventually be used to bring healing and relief to her daughter, that I can come to Jesus and express my simplicity of heart. And he would show compassion to her and help her. And he hears you as you come in simplicity of heart. So verse 30, and when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. And again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of the Capolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. So Jesus leaves that area along the coast and he continues to go eastward. He would go through what we know to be Syria today and he would go into that area at this time in Mark's gospel, it was called Decapolis. It was known for its 10 Greek cities. And then he would drop down to the south on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus probably spent several months on this journey. And here in Mark, it records that on that journey, there was one who was brought to him, one who is deaf and has a speech impediment, obviously because of his deafness. And know this, you might want to write it down if you're a note taker. That if I am not hearing clearly, I'm not going to be speaking correctly. You see, there's a linkage between hearing and speaking. And if I am not hearing clearly from the Lord, I'm not going to be speaking correctly to the people who come my way. Sometimes people will ask me, how is it that I can help those who are hurting? It all starts by you listening. Taking time perhaps daily in the morning, it all starts by spending that time with him, whatever works out for you during the day. Grabbing that time and, and spending that time listening to the Lord, taking in the word. Those times is just as you're doing this morning and coming together corporately to study God's word. But you must be listening, taking in, so then you might speak correctly to those who need help. And this man could not hear because he wasn't speaking correctly. And so verse 32, they, they begged him to put his hand on him, and he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue, and then looking up to heaven, sighed and said to him, Epatha, that is, be open. And immediately his ears were open, and the impediment of his tongue was loose, and he spoke plainly. So Jesus showing us in Mark chapter 7, don't live your lives according to traditions and rituals and formulas. Don't pray to me in just a formula. Yes, there are commandments we follow. There's principles and truths that we apply in our lives. But we need to understand that so oftentimes we want to work by methods and come up with methods and formulas and phraseologies. God doesn't work exactly the same in similar situations. 
You notice in the healing that he did, he didn't use the same method every single time. Sometimes he would just simply speak and people would be healed. Sometimes he would touch them, they would be healed. Sometimes he would do other things. For example, we know that one time he spat on the ground and made mud and put it on the blind man's eyes and told him to go wash. In this instance, he would reach out, he would put his fingers in the guy's ear and, you know, he would then spitting, putting it on the man's tongue. We think God's got to work in this way and, and this method and this formula. And it seems like we can always be looking for the secret formula rather than remembering, yes, Lord, yes, there's commandments, there's principles and truths that I apply in my lives. But Lord, you're going to lead in the way that you want. You're going to work by your sovereign grace. Because God doesn't want us just to be focused on methods. He wants us to develop relationship. And Lord, you work as you please, as you lead. And I'm open to you doing what you want to do in my life, where you want to take my life. Lord, you work as you please to work, that I may bring glory and honor to you. But I'd like to leave you as we close here this morning with just a couple of thoughts that maybe will help you as you minister to those who aren't hearing clearly and now are not speaking correctly, how we might help them. First of all, I see Jesus taking the time to minister to this individual. Number one, you need to take time to minister to others. Expend the energy. To pull people aside, as Jesus did here, he took them aside, away from the multitude, so he can devote his full attention to him. If you want to help others, you and I, we need to carve out that time and make the effort and expend the energy to, to take them aside and minister to them. That the Lord may bring to you who are not hearing presently the things of God and are not speaking obviously the things that are pleasing to God, how you might be able to help them hear more clearly so they can speak more correctly. Secondly, he touched those areas that were not working right. As you seek to help others who aren't hearing from the Lord and speaking the things of the Lord, you take time to minister to them. Secondly, touch those areas that aren't working right. You can bring correction out of love. You can bring rebuke out of love and say, listen, this isn't working right in your life. This isn't right the way that you're living. And that's why you're experiencing the consequences of what you're going through. You're reaping what you sow. You don't have to live this way. You don't have to be in bondage to this sin. You don't have to think this way. And we can touch those areas of people's lives that are not working right. Jesus touched this man's ears and his tongues because he wasn't hearing, he wasn't speaking right. And oftentimes, people in turmoil wondering, why is life so hard? Why the difficulties? And you can look at their lives and you can put your finger on it, can't you? Well, this is what you're doing. Don't live this way. God has come to bring you life and life abundantly. You're reaping what you sowed and encourage them to turn to the Lord and to his ways. Then thirdly, lastly, this is important, heartfelt compassion. Jesus sighed in verse, four, in verse 34, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. The Lord help you and me to real, really feel for people and to really have compassion for them. Jesus here sighed. He was concerned for the one who couldn't hear, that couldn't speak. Jesus showed heartfelt compassion. And that's my hope and prayer for all of us, that we would have compassion to those who need the Lord's touch. Jesus looked at the crowds. 
with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He really cared. He really loved them. Do we care? Do we show the love of Jesus Christ to a lost world, to those who are hurting, to those who have need? Jesus fed the 5,000 as he ministered to them. It was the disciples that said, send them away, send them away. And Jesus said, you give them something to eat. The Gentile woman, as we saw this morning, comes to Jesus. The disciples are saying, go away, you're bugging us. But it was Jesus that had compassion and helped her. So what's our mindset when people come to us? Are we like the disciples that have a tendency to say, go away, don't interrupt my life, don't bug me, I don't have time for you, or are we going to be more like our Lord to take the time as we show compassion for them to minister to them? To pull them aside, to take the energy and the effort to say, you know what, the Lord loves you. And here's the good news of the gospel, or here's God's word given to you giving them the love of God and the instructions of God so that they might hear that and they too might go out of their way as they go their way speaking clearly the goodness of God and the truth of God because you took the time to minister to them.